Well, let's open up the Word of God. Take your Bibles. Join me in Revelation chapter 2 once again. We've been looking at the letters of Christ to seven churches. You know the backstory here. We got the last apostle standing. That's John. He is an aged man at this point. He has been exiled to the island of Patmos by the emperor Domitian. And so here's this old guy doing hard labor. The risen Christ appears to him, says, take dictation, John. I'm going to write some letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And we've been studying those letters. These churches are literal churches in John's day. They were actual churches, but as we've said, they also are representative of various ages throughout church history. And these letters contain beneficial things for every church of every generation, including this church right here. We can learn from each and every letter. And we have studied Ephesus, the first church uh, of these letters. And uh, Ephesus was the church, if you recall, that, that left its first love. It had lost its passion for the gospel. And then we looked at a church in a place called Smyrna, and Smyrna was the persecuted church. They suffered, and they were purified through that suffering. Nothing like, like suffering for Jesus that will bring you closer to him, and that, that's what happened to Smyrna. And then we studied last week the church at Pergamum, and Pergamum was the compromising church. They allowed faulty doctrine to creep in and to lay down some roots. And now we're going to look at a church in a place called Thyatira. And it is, it is uh, unlike Pergamum, where, where there were just some in that church that had compromised and been led astray. This is not just some. This is the corrupted church. Uh, this is one person who comes in and is allowed to wreak havoc. And what this individual teaches uh, spreads like a virus. And it just takes hold and corrupts the entirety of this church. Church. How does a church become corrupt? It happens gradually. It does not happen in the blink of an eye. Uh, are there things that, that churches can embrace today and we don't know where they began? Started a long time ago. Can, can churches, can Christians embrace things that are not so, that are not true, but they just believe them as though they are true and they don't know where they got them? They just, they just always believe them? Do people do that? I heard a story about a girl, she was watching her mother uh, prepare a pot roast, and she watched her mother take that pot roast, and she cut the ends off the pot roast, put it in the pot. She said, what are you doing that for, Mom? And she said, well, you know, I, I, I just always saw my mother do it. I think it has something to do with making it juicier. Why don't you ask Grandma? And so the girl went to Grandma, and she said, Grandma, Mom, Mom uh, takes the pot roast, cuts the ends off before she puts it in the pot. And she said, she saw you do that. What's that about? She said, well, I don't know. I just always saw my mother do it. I think it has something to do with making it juicy. Why don't you ask your great-grandmother? And so the girl goes to her great-grandma. She says, great-grandma, Mom and, and Grandma both cut the ends off the pot roast. They both got it from you. They said they thought it made it more juicy. What's the deal? And the great-grandmother said, Oh, for goodness sake, I never had a pot big enough <laughs> for the roast, so I just lopped the ends off of it. And sometimes that's how we are. We just believe things because that's what we've always been told. And that is a dangerous thing when it comes to church. It can be very, very dangerous. And so let's look at Thyatira. Let me give you a little background on this place. This is about uh, 35 miles north of Pergamum, 
up the coast, and there's, a, there's an industry there. And the, the primary industry is a dye. D-Y-E. It's a dye. And, and specifically, a purple dye. All right? Uh, that was uh, a mark of a very affluent family to have clothing that was dyed purple in those days. It was known for this dye. You might recall from Acts chapter 16, if you've read the book of Acts, there was a lady named Lydia. And Lydia was a purveyor of purple fabric. And we see her in, a, in Philippi, but she must have been there on business because she was from Thyatira. And so that was her industry. And so Thyatira was uh, a center for textiles, kind of like Burlington back in the day. Okay, and so they, they specialized in, in fabrics and, and this purple dye. And uh, there were a couple ways that you could get this dye. They had roots around there called matter root that you would uh, extract this dye from. They also had because it was on the coast there, in the waters off of the coast, there were these sea snails called murex, and you could crush them, and you could extract this purple fluid, and that's how they would dye the fabric, because it was hard to come by, hard to extract, hard to find. It was very, very expensive. And so this is kind of an affluent, high-dollar town. But that's the backdrop to this letter and this church. And as Christ begins his letter, he does what he always does with these little epistles, he identifies himself. And so we're going to get started here in verse 18. It says, And to the angel of the church, and as we've said, angel refers to the, the, the prime messenger of the church, the pastor. He says, I want you to write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And so as we've seen with every letter in the introduction, it highlights a particular facet of who Christ is, something about his character. And here he is described as having eyes like a flame of fire. And what that means is he's intimidating. And you cannot hide from him. Okay? He's got eyes like fire. He will see you. And the gospel tells us early on in, in the book of John uh, that, that Christ knows what's in the heart of a man. He sees everything, and it says he's got feet like burnished bronze. Bronze is often uh, typifying of, pro, uh, of, of judgment, shall we say, uh, burnished bronze. Uh, it's as though his feet are glowing like they're in a furnace, and he is getting ready to tread upon the chaff and set it aflame. And what this tells us about his character in your notes is that he's all-seeing and a destroyer of evil. That is Christ. He's a, he's a judge. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.17, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. You are to conduct yourself with fear. And by that I mean you are to be aware that there is a holy judge. When people say, well, you know, to fear God, that's just to, to respect him. Listen, I think it's more than respect. I mean, this is someone who can snuff out a life. Nobody has that power but him. He is to be feared. Okay, we often equate fear with, with scary things, with Halloween and all that. Listen, fear belongs to God and to God alone. And so it is a holy fear and it is appropriate. And the time of your exile that you conduct yourself with fear in, what is that? That's your time on the earth. Okay, Paul says we make it our aim while we're here to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You're going to be judged. If you know Christ, you're going to stand before the judgment seat and you will be judged according to your works for reward. 
If you know Christ, you're going to heaven, but he is going to judge your works for the purpose of reward. And if you have passed up opportunity to do things in his name, you'll be aware of that at that judgment. You're not going to be punished for it, but you will, you will know that you have not taken every opportunity. If you are not in Christ, if you don't know him, there's a different judgment awaiting for you. It's called the great white throne judgment. Folks, we don't want to be at that judgment. There's no good that's going to come from that judgment, as we'll see in just a bit here. So we move on from this identification of the Lord's character. Now we're going to look at what he commends them for, the Lord's commendation. Believe it or not, he's got something good to say. He says in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So he sees all, right? We've established that, but not just the bad. Sometimes we think of God as all-seeing, and we just think about all the bad things that he sees. Well, he sees the good, too. He sees the good, too. And, and he knows their deeds, he says. And what that tells us about this church in your notes is that they had a history of faithfulness. There was a point in the life of this particular church where they had some faithful people. And a lot of churches have a history of faithfulness. I know that there have been a lot of faithful people come through this church in its history, going back to when it was a Hall River Christian, okay? And so this might be a place that has a, a, a rich heritage. You know, if this church was, was around today, they might be called Heritage Baptist or something like that. They might be like, you know, Landmark Community Fellowship. What does uh, Proverbs twenty two twenty eight say? Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. That means that it's important to look back and to recognize and appreciate the foundation of faithfulness that you have as a believer, whether you're talking about your family or your church, you appreciate what God did in the past. I was a member at a fellowship one time and there was a pastoral transition, a longtime pastor, he was retiring, new guy coming in, and it was a very, very healthy transition. This guy had worked with this younger pastor, knew him well, wanted him to succeed, promoted him to the church, said, listen, he addressed the body. He knew that he was beloved. He said, look, I just want you to know, I'm, I'm stepping down. We've got a new guy coming in. A lot of you going to long for the good old days. And they were the good old days, okay? But he gave him an image. And I'll never forget this. He said, have you ever seen a rowing team? You ever seen a, a, a crew on a boat, a team that is rowing away? How do they progress? As they are rowing, they got those oars going, right? What are they doing? They're looking backward. They're facing backward, but they're moving forward. They're looking at where they had come from, but they are moving ahead. And so the lesson here is we look at our foundation, the heritage of faithfulness from, which, from whence we emanate but we progress forward. We don't get stuck in the past. And that is a, a beautiful thing. And so this church could do that, but they're not. They get stuck, and they're stuck in the present. But they did have a history of faithfulness. Now, is it possible for a church to have a strong beginning, you know, uh, some great early days, but then go dry doctrinally? Does that happen? Uh, the number of churches that were once great but have gone south is just just countless. And we're going to see after the commendation, we're going to see a condemnation. A condemnation. He says in verse 20, but I have this against you. Oh, you don't want to hear that from Christ. 
I got this against you. He said that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. And what this tells us in your notes is that they had a stomach for sin and error. They had a tolerance for false teaching. And people were being seduced. Servants were being seduced. The word for seducing is the Greek word planes. Planes means to wander. To wander. Planes. Uh, when you're growing up, you ever lie on your back on the ground at night and stare up at the stars? You ever do that? Uh, if you're out there for a length of time, maybe you noticed that those twinkly things in the sky, that, that most of them were fixed points, but some of them would move. And the ones that appeared to move, what were those? Why were they moving? Were those stars? Uh, no, those were planets. And they appear to wander in the night sky. Well, we get the word planets from planes because it means to wander. And this text says that this woman, Jezebel, was causing the servants in the church to wander. Do church people ever wander? Doctrinally? Behaviorally? They wander away from that which they should stay tied to uh, from a belief standpoint. Heard a story about a couple uh, that had been together for some time and they liked to drive around. That was just their habit. They would just cruise around with the top down. But they were in a rough patch. They were not very close anymore. And, and the woman had, you know, she was all the way over on her side of the car and she's just kind of staring out the window despondently as as uh, the guy's driving, and she's not happy with the situation. She says, you know, I just don't understand why we are where we are. We used to be so close. She says, I don't know what happened to us. She said, don't you remember how, how you used to drive us around, and I would, I'd have my head on your shoulder, and you'd have your arm around me? And this old boy's just driving, and he's just going, baby, I ain't moved. You know? <laughs> you know? I'm really glad I hear some of the ladies laughing at that joke. Sometimes people wander. They just slide down, you know? And sometimes denominations and institutions do that. Once great, and they wander from the things that made them great. And here it's observed that this wandering is because of this woman, this person named Jezebel. She's come in with this modern, uh, pervasive, Gnostic uh, teaching that is contradictory to the Bible. And she claims to be of God. She claims to be a prophet, a prophetess. She ain't. She is antithetical. She differs from Scripture. And the result is there are people that have wandered. And the reason this is happening is because he says, you guys tolerate it. The word is aphase. And it means to permit. It's to say, you're good. You're all right. Go ahead. You're okay. Go ahead. You ever go through security at the airport? You know, and you just can't wait to get through it. I mean, you, it's such an arduous thing these days. You got to take your shoes off, take your belt off, take your wallet out, take your phone out, you know, put your stuff on the, on the conveyor. You go through the thing. Sometimes they pull you aside. They wand you. You know, they're like, hey, we need you to come over here. We're going to go through your bag. They go through your bag. But then finally they go, okay, you may go. You're good. You're okay. What do you do? You pack up everything. You put it all on. You hit the bricks, man. You, you want to get out of there as fast as you can because you got permission. This is saying you're okay as you were. Please, 
on your way, whatever you want to do, you're free to do it. Christ is saying you guys knew what this person was doing. You knew what she was teaching. You knew that she was leading people astray and you turned her loose. You let her do it. You said you're okay, you know? And this is tolerance in the church. Now today, tolerance is often thought of as a cardinal virtue. Be tolerant. The world loves that. We should be tolerant. Be tolerant, you know. Used to be justice was the cardinal virtue. People held up just, now today justice is just, it means something else. Today, it used to mean do the right thing and don't do the wrong thing. That's justice. That is God's definition of justice. Justice defined properly is always a virtue. Tolerance is not virtuous unless you're tolerating something good. But tolerating evil is never a virtue. It's never, ever good. And certain ideas have crept into this church because they were tolerated. What Ephesus tested and and found to be false, and they cast it out. What Pergamum, in a limited fashion, compromised on and and allowed in, 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 in doses, this church has been overrun. It has commandeered Thyatira. Does that ever happen? You know what happened a lot in, in the United States in the early 1900s? There were churches, there were denominations that just went down the tubes because ideas were introduced. And you know where they came from? A lot of them came from Europe. A lot of them came from Germany. A lot of them were scientific ideas about evolution. Some of them were higher criticism ideas about the Bible that said, you know, the Bible is not the word of God. The Bible is not inerrant. It's not inspired. It's to be interpreted figuratively. It can mean whatever you want it to mean. And this hermeneutic came, a lot of it came out of Germany. Horrible theological, uh, heretical teaching coming out of Germany in the late 1800s. And there were American clergy who would go over there. They would go to seminary. Joey, make sure your seminary isn't like that, bro. All right? Where are you at? You know, and they would go over there and they'd get their head full of this errant teaching. They'd come back to the States and they'd introduce it in their churches, in seminaries, as they would teach classes. And, and it started to infiltrate. And there was, at the time, in the early 20s, you had some controversies. You had the, the modernist, fundamentalist controversy in the church. And it was, it was a big, hairy deal where, you know, there's a battle for the word of God. And you had the great theologian, and uh, well, he was, he was more of an evangelist, named Billy Sunday. And he famously said he had such little regard for the theology coming out of Germany back then. He said, if you took hell and you turned it upside down, it would say, made in Germany. That's what he would say. And so Thyatira embraces it all. Now, not every person in this church is corrupted. You're going to have some good people. We'll see that in a few verses. Verse 24 is going to say, but the rest of you who do not hold to this teaching. So you're going to have some people that abstain from this. And what that tells us is there's people that, that embrace it. There's people that don't. What do you call that when you have a church where some people go, no, and some people go, yes? What do you call that? That's a split. You got a split happening right here. And... There is division, and it is thanks to who? Jezebel? Ultimately, it's thanks to those leaders in that church that did not have a firm uh, hand, and they did not deal with errancy in the church. Now, she calls herself a prophetess. Is she a prophetess? No, but I guarantee you she didn't get away with what she got away with, except that other people thought she was a prophetess. 
And what does this teach us? This teaches us that you don't just believe anything that people say when they say, God told me. You hear, you listening? You don't always just accept it when somebody says, God told me. Anybody could say that. Test the spirits is what we're told to do here. Everybody can have a justification as to why this is of God, that's of God, this is of God, he's of God, she's of God, this move is of God. Doesn't make it so. Jezebel. Now, let's talk about this person. That's probably not a real name. I'm sure that's not a real name. That's a name that Christ is giving her right here for a reason. Have you ever heard someone called a Benedict Arnold? All right, or a Judas? Ooh, that's bad. We know what that means, right? We understand that's saying something about their character, about their actions. Well, there are also certain women in the Bible whose names you would not name your baby. All right? I have not been to too many baby dedications with a, you know, a Delilah, for example. I mean, there might be one. It's kind of a pretty name, but, you know, just because of who that was in Scripture. Uh, and Jezebel, it's the same way. Now, Jezebel, if you don't recall, in the Old Testament, we, we meet her for the first time in 1 Kings. She figures into 2 Kings quite a bit. Every fairy tale, evil queen, wicked queen character that you've ever heard finds its inspiration in Jezebel. She's vile. She is the daughter of a Tyrian uh, pagan king, and she marries a Jewish king by the name of Ahab, and he's one of the vilest, most wicked kings uh, to come out of Israel. He's the king of the northern kingdom after the split. Israel was one unified kingdom, and then after Solomon, split into north and south. So Ahab was the king in the north, and uh, he was still a Jew, but he married a non-Jew. Now, you could marry a Gentile as a Jew if they would convert to the true God. Jezebel did not. She remained a pagan. You could not marry a pagan, but he did. And she was into Baal worship, which you see all over the New Testament, Old Testament, Baal worship. Uh, in fact, her name, Jezebel, is uh, an affectation of that kind of pagan worship. And together, they were just a wicked power couple. They forbade the prophets to come up in the north and to speak on behalf of God. And, uh, you know, they, they, they defied the Lord. They built a temple and an altar to Baal. I've been there. I've been to the northern... Uh, kingdom vicinity in Israel, and I've seen the ruins of the temple where Baal was worshipped in the north. And they defied God when he said, I forbid anyone to rebuild Jericho, and I'll curse anyone who rebuilds it. Ahab rebuilt it. He laid the foundation, he built the gate, and all of that. And so this, this was a woman who seduced a member of God's people, Israel, and caused him to wander. And so that is the tradition. And that tradition emanated from that Old Testament Jezebel. It turned into a pattern. There was a pattern of Israelite kings, both north and south, that, that fell into idolatry. Finally, the south got a good king by the name of Jehoshaphat. You've, you've heard of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat loved the Lord, wanted to honor the Lord, desired strongly for the north and the south kingdoms to be reunited. Good goal. He wanted peace. Noble. He wanted unity. Unity is good. Is unity worth it at all costs? Do you ever lay aside truth for the sake of unity? Do you ever tolerate error for the sake of unity? You do not, and yet Jehoshaphat tried. His motivation was right, but his method was all wrong. 
And so he would jump back and forth between positions for the sake of unity. He just jumped. Maybe that's how he got the name Jumpin' Jehoshaphat. I don't know. Um, I can't help it sometimes. He attempted three ways to unify the North and the South. He tried an alliance with the North. He said, let's have a military alliance. That was a disaster. He said, let's have a commercial alliance. That was a disaster. He tried a marital alliance. He got an idea. He said, you know, you have a daughter, Jezebel, Ahab. Um, I have a son. Let's get him married. And this, you see this in medieval times. You know, you saw Britain and, and France, and then this princess marry this prince, and there'd be some kind of national alliance there. That's the idea. We'll, we'll have to be unified because now we're family. And so his son Jehoram wed Jezebel and Ahab's daughter Athaliah. Perfect plan, except the ways of Jezebel. Apple did not fall far from that tree, and Athaliah corrupted Jehoram, and he fell into idolatry. Now you got two generations of kings that are tainted by false teaching and idolatry. And so the way that plays out, just so you know, Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah, she's the queen of Judah along with Jehoram. And what happens is Jehoram reigns for a number of years, and then he eventually dies. Well, you need a new king. And so they look to the descendants of the king to crown uh, a descendant there. Well, Athaliah wanted the throne for herself. She wanted to be the undisputed ruler of Judah. And so she made a command. She commanded the entire royal family be murdered. Every child, every grandchild be put to death. Her own children, her own flesh and blood, because she wanted the throne. That's the, the hateful evil that was in this woman that, that frankly was in keeping with her family. And I want you to know the, the, the satanic spiritual backdrop to that little scheme that she had because Satan was using Athaliah to wipe out the royal line. Why? Well, who were those children descended from? Well, Jehoram. Who else? Well, Jehoshaphat. Who else? Well, ultimately, David. Did God, made a did God make a covenant with David? What did he promise David? He said, your descendant will one day sit on your throne and he will rule eternally. What do we call that descendant? We call him the Messiah. And so if you wipe out David's last living descendant, what happens? Christ never comes. What happens if Christ never comes? You go to hell. I go to hell. And so this is the plan. How close did she come? Well, does God make covenants that he doesn't intend to keep? So what happened here? I'll just tell you. This is cool. Uh, the deceased king Jehoram, uh, he had a daughter by another wife, and that daughter's name was uh, Jehoshaphat. She had a husband, Jehoiada, who was the high priest. They heard of this plan to have the royal family murdered. They come up on the bloodbath. All of these babies that are slain. And among all of the bodies, they find one baby still alive. A little boy named Joash. They take him. They hide him. And they keep hiding him for six years. And this wicked queen, daughter of Jezebel, Athaliah, rules Judah for six years. When that little boy turned seven, during that whole time that they had hid him, they had plotted a coup 
and he turns seven. They have a coronation, and at the same time, there is a revolt against Athaliah, and the military apprehends her and assassinates her. And so God spares. They come within one baby of wiping out the Messianic line, but God cannot be squashed. And he comes through, and he... He sees to it that she is put to death. Incidentally, her own mother, Jezebel, also put to death prior to that. She made Elijah's life a living hell in her day up in the north. And Elijah prophesied about Jezebel's impending death, saying, you know, well, you can read about it for yourself, but her death fulfilled every element of Elijah's prophecy. Uh, At a minimum, she went right out the window. Somebody threw her out of a window. And that's not even the worst of it. Um, you can read about it for yourself if you want Second Kings 9. It's pretty gruesome. Let's just say she went to the dogs, okay? Um, question. Does God deal with evil? He does. He's a just God. Does he deal with it immediately every time? He does not. So the people of God will be tested. They're going to have to stand. They're going to have to stand. Churches are going to be tested. They're going to have to stand. And so... This tradition from the original Jezebel, evidenced in her own daughter, Athaliah, this continues on in this individual that Christ calls Jezebel. So, you know, if your name is Jezebel, if there's anybody here named Jezebel tonight, I would suggest go by Jesse, go by Bell, I don't, you know, anything but this. But she's called this, why? Because she comes in illicitly. She was... She should not, been, uh, should not have been allowed to do what she did. And she's Gnostic, right? What do the Gnostics believe? Here's what she's teaching. The Gnosticism uh, that she teaches, I've talked about before. They believed that they had special revelation. That there was a secret knowledge that they were a receptacle for. And only they could receive it. And you had to come to them to get that secret knowledge. They called it the deeper things. If you want the deeper things, you got to know me. you got to come to me. You can't know what I know. It's, it's Gnosticism, Gnosis, knowledge in the Greek. And not only that, they also believe that, that God is spirit, and so everything not spirit is corrupt and irredeemable. So anything fleshly, anything material, anything on this world, God will not redeem it, so you can't do anything about it, so you might as well partake in any sin that you want. It really doesn't matter. Your focus ought to be on spiritual things. You can do whatever you want in the body. Sin however you want. Eat to the point of gluttony. Drink to the point of drunkenness. Participate in as many orgies as you want. Take what you want. Be unethical. You know, do whatever. Be lewd. It doesn't matter. Focus on the secret things. That was this horrible thing. And what it meant is you had Christians in Thyatira that were led to think that it was just okay to go down to the pagan temple, eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols, which is really sacrificed to demons, Paul says. And then after that, you could, you could have sexual relations with any of the temple prostitutes because that's what this teaching said. And it was counter to the fundamental beliefs of the church. That makes no sense whatsoever. You walk into an institution that is named for Christ. And you get things that have nothing to do with Christ. If you walked into a Ford dealership and you're admiring a nice, new, shiny F-150, salesman comes up to you and says, how you doing? I'll tell you what you need. You need a Chevy. <laughs> You'd be like, what? what? If a manager heard that, that guy'd be out on his ear, 
right? Makes no sense. Well, she is selling something counter to the true gospel. Peter says it may have a Christian label, but it's bondage. Second Peter 2.19, they promised them freedom, false teachers. But they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person. To that, he is enslaved. I don't care what you call it, a skunk by any other name still stinks. Now remember, these seven churches, these, these were real churches in John's day, but as I said, they represent eras in church history. So Ephesus, that's the early church, first century church, apostolic age, right? Smyrna, that's the persecuted church under Rome. They suffered for Christ. Uh, Pergamum, that's the church that grows to the point that Rome not only decides to tolerate it, but they morph into it. They say everybody's going to be Christian, and they adopt it. And in doing so, they introduce compromise into the church. Now we got Thyatira. All that error that began to infiltrate the church in the previous age, now it's commandeered the church. It's totally corrupted it. What, what, what era was this historically? Well, I told you last week about Constantine, Roman Emperor Constantine. Remember, he's going into battle against Maxentius, Story goes, he sees a giant cross in the sky, and he hears in Latin this voice that says, conquer in this sign. And he goes forth, he's victorious, and this supernatural experience that he has so impacts him. It's such an encounter, it's such, a, such a, a, an emotional moment. See, you got to be careful about experience and emotion. Got to be careful. That he thinks it means... I need to follow Christ, but not only that, the whole nation must now become Christian, and he decrees it. He says, everybody must be a Christian under threat of death. That's, that's one way to evangelize. But what happens is these pagan Romans don't change their ways at all. They just put a Christian label on it. And so now Christianity has become pagan by virtue of one state church, one state church. Religion, and it slowly gets corrupted as these pagan practices morph with Christian ideas. You know, you ever heard of the Roman Catholic Church? You ever wonder why it's called that? Started in 602 AD. It's when Rome adopted Christianity as its national religion, as an empire. That's where Roman Catholicism comes from. Now, I'm not here to attack Catholics, I love Catholics. A lot of my good friends are Catholics. Uh, but I'm, I'm saying that the rise of the Roman Catholic Church was not healthy for Christianity because from 602 uh, A.D. to 1500 A.D., you had some ideas introduced into Christianity that are unbiblical. And if you grew up Catholic, you might be familiar with some of this stuff. You had ideas introduced like praying to saints, not biblical. You had worship of Mary, veneration of Mary, unbiblical. You had the worship of angels, that is forbidden by angels in Revelation. You've got the notion of praying for the dead. You don't pray for the dead. If somebody dies and they know Jesus, they're in heaven. They don't need you to pray for them. If they're not in Christ and they die, they're in hell. There's nothing you can do for them. And there's no purgatory. Unbiblical uh, concept. Not in the word of God. You had the idea, the practice of praying the rosary. This is not a biblical practice. Well, the beads and all this stuff. The notion that praying in Latin is more powerful than any other language. That's not a thing. There's no Latin in the Bible. 
Jesus didn't pray in Latin for Pete's sake. You have this idea of holy relics, that there was power in certain objects that might have been used or touched by saints or biblical characters or some such thing. Nothing like that in Scripture. You have the notion of priests wearing robes and collars to separate them from the laity as though they're on a higher plane. You have this doctrine of transubstantiation. Have you heard of that? That's when you take communion, the elements, the wafer, the cup. It's the idea that when you partake of those, that that wafer, that literally becomes the flesh, the actual flesh of Christ, and you ingest it. And the cup becomes the literal blood, and you drink his actual blood. It's just warped. And then, of course, you've got the, not the least of all these unbiblical ideas, is salvation by faith plus works. And, uh, of course, that is a non-biblical concept. Now, again... I know Catholics that love Jesus, and I'm not saying that all Catholics are going to go to hell. I believe that we'll see some in heaven. But there are some beliefs that they must avoid and that they must reject in order to claim the true gospel. But you saw corruption, and that's the era represented by Thyatira. Why, the papacy itself is unbiblical. It's unbiblical. And at the height of the papacy, you had Pope Innocent. He declared the Roman bishop was authoritative. All powers were submitted to him. And so you had a time where Christianity uh, was a state religion, and what that meant was it was advantageous for people to become leaders in that religion, because that's where all the power was. And you had people jockeying to become bishops and uh, cardinals and such, because they they had power, but they didn't want what went along with that, which was celibacy. And so they would have mistresses. And so now they were morally corrupt, and they would have illegitimate children. And then to keep things quiet, they would name those children later as they grew to positions in the church, and they would become cardinals and abbots and such. And as young as age 14, they'd be ahead of a monastery or something like that. You had nepotism going on. It was a corrupt time in Christianity, and it got so bad that it just eventually went off the rails and you had this unavoidable event called the Protestant Reformation. And that actually ties into the church we're going to look at next week. And so I'm not going to dive into that right now. But that is historically the era that is represented with Thyatira right here. So now we're moving in this letter toward the Lord's correction. We're going to look at what he does to to correct them, to discipline them, to judge them. And in verse 21, he says, I gave her, talking about Jezebel, he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. There really is no correction for Jezebel, okay? There's nothing to correct. It's too late for her. But I want you to notice, he says, I gave her time. I gave her time. That means he's patient. See, the most amazing thing about church history is not the wandering from the truth. It's not the rampant corruption. The most amazing thing about church history is the patience of God. It's that he's merciful and that he he, he, he stays his hand of judgment. And in every age, he appears to find people that are faithful. They're good men and women that are obedient to him. But with Jezebel, his patience has run out. And in your notes, what you see is you see the destruction for the deceiver. There is a destruction for the deceiver. It's very clear in the Old Testament, there was a heavy, heavy price that false prophets had to pay. If they claimed to be of God and they spoke things not of God... Uh, they were to be dealt with severely and swiftly. And he says in verse 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed. 
This Jezebel has been a prostitute. She has adulterated the truth. Okay, And he says, you've rolled around on a bed of adultery. Now I'm going to throw you on a different bed. I'm going to throw you on a bed of sickness. And the word here is kline. Kline. And it, it's the kind of bed that a terminally ill person would be carried about on. It's not a bed that you get up and walk away from on your own power. And so there is a very real fate that he is reserving for this individual. Not only that, he's going to give us an ultimatum for the deceived in your notes. An ultimatum. Because he says, and, and, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw down into great tribulation unless. See, there was no unless for Jezebel. There's an unless here. Unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead Okay, so he's going he's gonna to do this to them unless they turn from this teaching. But if they remain, he considers them the children of her teaching. They are the offspring of her errant and false doctrine. And the word for dead here, when he says, I'll strike you dead, the word is the root of thanatos, which is not merely physical death. It is a word that means death, but it's not physical death. It, it really refers to the result of sin. It's the miserable, eternal state of the soul in hell. If you don't turn from this, this is what this theology is. It, it will damn you to hell. And no true Christian would ever embrace it. And then he says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. And what this means in your notes is that you must turn back or become an example. Turn back. Or become an example. He says, I want to make an example out of you. Are there churches in Europe that were once great, and you go to them now, and they're just a museum? They're dead. They're just for tourists, really. They're beautiful. You walk around in them, but they're dead. There's nothing going on in there. And they've been condemned. When I was in my 20s, uh, I was part of a music group. We traveled around. I had a buddy of mine that uh, I would hang with on this group, and we had some downtime, and we were in the south once with some free time, and he said, hey, you know what's around here? And I go, what? And, and he, he mentioned it was the name of this once thriving ministry that I knew of, and it was from the, the heyday of those televangelist ministries in the 1980s. And this was a particular ministry that had gone down in flames, as many of them did. They, they experienced scandals, a lot of them, moral, ethical, okay, and this particular ministry, which a lot of you would know, went down the toilet. And, but it was massive. And he said, their headquarters is around here. And there's nobody there. Like, it's abandoned. And he says, you want to check it out? I go, yeah. So we went. <laughs> and we found this place. And it was like a ghost town. And this was one of those that just really got out of hand. I mean, they built a massive shopping center and we went, and it was like a little mall, really, and it was completely locked up. Nobody there. No sign of life. They had a theme park, totally rusted over. They'd made a, a, a recreation of the Temple Mount. We found it. It was all overgrown with thicket. It was, it was uh, falling apart. There was a prayer garden with all these statues of biblical saints. They were all in disrepair, and uh, everything was just completely abandoned. There were all these timeshares on the property, these chateaus that people would pay to go and live in. They were locked up tight as a drum, nobody in there. It's as though people just got up and left overnight. When they shut that place down, we looked in the windows of these timeshares and it, everything was still there like they'd left it. All the magazines were spread out on the coffee tables. It was eerie. 
And it's like God just, you know, dropped the hammer. And I later found out that place, that whole property, the whole operation had been purchased and resold and purchased and resold and purchased and resold. It just went belly up over and over and over. It's like it was cursed. And it may have been because they had stopped following God and started following another. And I think that 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 could be what is being spoken of here. He could also be talking about a final judgment at the great white throne. We're going to stand before all the unbelieving. We're going to stand before a holy God one day at the end of the millennium. And it's not going to be a fun time for them. So Christ speaks four verses to these bad guys. And now he's going to give a command and a promise. In your notes, the believer's command and promise. He says, but to the rest of you, verse 24, in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. You see, you catch that? The deep things. Okay, a little bit of humor there. The Gnostics, they said secret knowledge. It's the deep things. That's what they called it. You want to know the deep things? You come to me. He says, you've not known the deep things of Satan. This is Jesus making a funny, is what this is. And they are deep things. How deep is hell, okay? Um, He says, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. And the interesting thing is, he's quoting here. This is maybe the only time I'm aware of where Christ quotes from somewhere in the New Testament. He's quoting from Acts 15. You had the Jerusalem Council. This is when the Judaizers were infiltrating the churches that Paul had had begun. And they were saying, hey, hey, it's great that you want to follow Jesus. That's super, really. But you know, you also need to follow the law. You need to be a good Jew. You gotta, you gotta be circumcised. You gotta follow these ordinances. You gotta do these ceremonial things. Plus, follow Christ. And then you'll have salvation. So they called the first council. The Jerusalem council. All the apostles came together. Peter stands up in front of these guys. And he speaks what would become the apostles' creed. He said, Christ alone. We believe in Christ. And he says this. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. There are essential truths. We cannot have unity in the church if someone departs from essential things. If anyone says trust in anything other than Christ, if anyone says trust in anything other than the word of God, if anyone says trust in anything other than grace, faith, it's, it's for anything other than the glory of God, you part ways. Because those are the basics. Those are the essentials. This is the Christianity in its pure form is the ultimate belief system. It's perfect. You don't add to it. You don't reimagine it. You don't reinterpret it. You don't recraft it. You don't repackage it to make it palatable to the modern world. You don't deny the basics that there was a, a perfect creation by the hand of a perfect God and man was made in perfection, but then he rebelled and, and he fell into sin under the curse and he was tainted, but that God had an immediate plan for his redemption that he would send his only son 
to humanity that God himself would take on flesh. He would live a perfect life. He would go to the cross as a substitutionary payment for our sin and that by believing in that by faith, you have redemption. You have a free gift of grace. You don't work for it and he grants it to you and he transforms you from the inside out and his spirit lives in you and he is coming back to take you home to be with him. And you don't deny that. And he says in verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. Well, actually he says in verse 25, hold on, hold on. He says, only hold fast. Hold fast what you have until I come. And so in your notes, what this means is stay the course. Stay the course. Don't trade the basics for the exciting. Don't go after the flashy. Don't go after what makes you feel nice and fuzzy and warm and good. Don't go after the trendy. Don't go after the culturally irrelevant. You stick with the stuff. You stay the course. Hold fast. How long? He says, until I come. Until I come. Then he says, verse 26, the one who conquers, that's everybody who is in Christ. That's believers. The one who conquers, who keeps my works till the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Jesus is still quoting. Now he quotes from Psalm 2. Look at Psalm 2. Compare this. Psalm 2, 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You know who's speaking there? It's God. You know who he's speaking to? The Messiah. This is the Father's word to his Son, to the Messiah. But in Revelation, when Christ quotes it, it's the Messiah speaking. And who's he speaking it to? He's speaking it to the Messiah's children. The people of the Messiah. And what that means is we recognize in your notes that we will reign with him. Are you happy about that? Ha yeah. <laughs> ha! We will reign with him. We're joint heirs. We remember that don't get caught up in the flashy. The right here, right now. This is nothing it's kindling. You've got eternal treasures awaiting, okay? Your day is coming. When you get down, when you're like, people don't respect me, the world is mocking me, I'm like a pincushion. I'm taking a beating down here, your day is coming. You're going to reign with him. And not only that, he says in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. What does that mean? In your notes, we will be like him. We will be like him. You know what the morning star is? Like if you're into astronomy, the morning star, that's what they call Venus. Venus. What is it about Venus? Brightest star in the sky when the, when the sun's about to come up. The brightest star is Venus because it's reflecting the sun. It's reflecting the sun. And you know when you see Venus, that bright spot in the night sky, you know that dawn is coming. Dawn is coming. Who is called the morning star? In Revelation twenty two sixteen, Jesus says, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. So he says, I will give the conqueror the morning star. That means you're going to be like him. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know... 
that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. Tired of this old lowly body. Aren't you tired of that old lowly body you got? He'll transform it into a glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And I love this. Luke 1, 78 to 79 says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Isn't that beautiful? Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high? To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. I'm going to memorize that sucker. That's good stuff. You hang on to that. You hold fast to what you have. And you stay the course. And you don't deny essential doctrine. And he closes it out like he does every letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Churches are not places of no judgment. Okay? They're not places of no judgment. To the contrary. They are places where truth reigns in love. We are to judge. We are to judge. We judge doctrine. We judge conduct. We love all people. We love all people. But we call sin, sin. And we call false doctrine, false doctrine. And we aren't ashamed of that. Do we tolerate? We tolerate people in that we coexist with them. You know? Uh, Paul said, you know, uh, you avoid sinful people, but I'm not talking about those who are in the world. I'm talking about those who are in the church. If, you can't avoid those who are in the world. You'd have to leave planet Earth. But we guard Christ's precious church, and we reserve it for him. And we don't allow sin to take hold in his church. We don't allow errant teaching to take hold in his church. That's the lesson from Thyatira. And that's all I got tonight. All right? Let's thank the Lord for his word. Father God, I just uh, come to you humbly. I'm just in awe of your book the meaning that it has, God, what you bring to us as we are privileged to open it together. Uh, God, it's truly an honor. And we don't take this lightly, what it means to be part of your church. You, you came for us. You died for us. You've set us apart. You've reserved us for glory. You've blessed us with every heavenly blessing. And make us ever mindful of that, Lord, as we are good stewards of what you have given. May we guard it. May we protect it. May we be vigilant. And may we be intolerant of wickedness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.